through 17 of uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. Last week, we looked at this same passage and really the sections that come after it as well, structurally. Uh, Peter is here in this section exhorting us how to live in this world, how to conduct our lives while living in this world, and particularly, as you will have gathered by how I just led us in prayer and by the sermons that have come before us and the texts that were before us this morning, how to live honorably in this world, how to live an honorable life in the eyes of the world that is around us. And this teaching that he has done or is going to do in the section we've got today and the ones that follow is according to a pretty deliberate structure. He's using uh, a familiar pattern of what we can call these household codes or what has been called household codes. And as he does this, he's describing various spheres that exist in this world. Now, I'm using the word spheres to describe these because that actually, I think it's a good word that describes it. It also has an old reformed connection uh, to talk about these various spheres of authority that exist in the world. But these spheres of, of government and the family and the church to describe how we ought to live an honorable life. And within those spheres, there is the substance of them, the area of life that they're concerned with. There are the principles that govern our conduct within those spheres. And then additionally, there are structures within those spheres. There are structures of authority and the need to submit to authority as it exists within those spheres. That's kind of the pattern for all of the sections that follow here for the next significant portion of the letter before us. And all of this instruction, all of it is modeled on, all of it is emanating from the life of Jesus. Now, in our passage, as I noted last week, the name of Jesus isn't there uh, but there's an indicator where it says, be subject for the Lord's sake. And that's kind of pointing to, for the Lord's sake, for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, after the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ. In this section, just, just after what we're going to read this morning, is where we really draw in the focus on Christ and where we're really shown by Peter why we're living this kind of honorable life and why, in particular, the life that is a difficult life, that is oftentimes a life of enduring ill-treatment or enduring suffering, is actually a purposeful life. And the, the baseline for all of that is the intentional, the purposeful, the indispensable, the missional suffering of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't just happen to suffer. His suffering was intentional. It was for a purpose. And so Peter is saying now, as you live in this world, that's your model. That's your pattern. This suffering that your Lord and Savior endured for this purpose is now your pattern, and it's how things are going to be governed in these various spheres. So he begins with our section today, which we can call the sphere of the state or uh, the civic sphere or the civil sphere. Uh, and it's obviously a broad sphere. It's a broad arena of life that we're talking about. We will focus on the political side of it, if you will, the, the state side of it and our relationship to the state as Christians and as a church. 
But parents, I especially say this for the sake of the kids uh, that you've got at home or that are here today, this has direct application to other spheres of life as well. So it has for your children direct application to life in the classroom or life on a sports team. And so you parents can take this and apply it specifically to your kids and spheres of their lives that are similar to these. So listen to this portion of the Word of God. Follow along with me in your Bibles, if you will. Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Loyal subjects. That's what we're talking about today. How are we to be loyal subjects? Lord, thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us both today to understand that which you have written and preserved for us, that which you are speaking to us this very day, and we pray that in understanding of it, we would also be able to obey it, to do it, to live it in our lives, to practice these things of which we preach and of which we consider and that we've just read. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If, if Jesus is our king, if Jesus is the king of kings and the sovereign of sovereign over all of the spheres with all things being subjected to him, And if we serve him, and if we are his loyal subjects, and if he has set us free, what then should be and what is our relationship to the state in which we find ourselves? A state which in Peter's day, of course, the Roman Empire was growing increasingly hostile towards the church and towards Christians, and a state whose head, the emperor, was seen and worshipped for possessing qualities of divinity. How does the Christian live between these two things? Can one be a loyal subject of King Jesus, a, a faithful citizen of the heavenly country of which King Jesus is the king and a loyal subject of the Roman emperor, a faithful citizen of the Roman empire. Can you be both of those things? And if so, how? And if not, why not? Where not? How can we live in this world? The church and Christians have wrestled with that question for thousands of years now. It is safe for us to say that this has always been a complicated intersection, a complicated intersection of trying to figure out the relationship between these two things, between the church and the state, between Christians and the state 
as well. There have been times throughout history when the state, and even now, oppresses the church and goes overboard in terms of controlling the church and wants to insist that it has headship over the church. There have been times throughout history when the church has said that as well. When the church has said, no, 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 we want to control the state, we are a state, and the state has to do exactly what we tell the state to do. It remains complicated in our own day. We have seen the complications of this issue. We have seen the differences in our interpretations of this issue bubble up, particularly in the past two to three years. As we've reflected on these issues, as we have struggled with them, the reality is that every generation in every place with those circumstances needs to wrestle with these issues. And I don't mean to demean this anyway or to pretend that this is always easy, but I think this is part of the dignity that God gives to us as image bearers. This is, this is part of the adventure of the life of faith that we've got to wrestle with these things, that we've got to figure these things out. As hard as they may be, as deep as the tensions may run, it is still part of the dignity with which God treats us that we should be able to struggle through these things. Now, I'm under no illusions, you should not be either, that we will resolve everything with five verses from Peter and a 30-minute sermon. That said, there are some great guiding principles and fixed points on the biblical map that are going to help steer us, not only as we walk through the passage this morning, but as we try to live out this life of faith in our state, in our world. So what I'd like to begin with today is, is a question that I think helps to begin to shape and understand what we've got in this text today. I want to ask the question, to whom are these particular exhortations addressed in the section that we've just read? Now, if you've got your Bibles open, you'll see that these sections are kind of marked out by paragraph or sometimes probably a heading at the top of them. In verse 18, where the next verse, if I had continued to read, we would read, servants, be subject to your master. There's no mystery there about whom is being addressed. Servants are being addressed there. Or chapter 3, the very beginning of it, wives are addressed. Or verse 7 in chapter 3, husbands are addressed. Or go to chapter 5, fellow elders are addressed. Those who are younger are addressed. We don't have in the text that is before us today a specific ascription like that. Okay, we've, we, we just start with be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. But I think we can say that by deduction, this is written to those who are governed, right? Those who are citizens, those who are subjects of the empire, or at least it is written to those who reside in the sphere of a particular state, and in this case, of course, the Roman Empire. That, that seems clear. So in that sense, we recognize that this doesn't belong to just one set of those people, either just to husbands, just to wives, or just to servants, or just to fellow elders, but it belongs to all of us, right? Because all of the people who would have been reading this letter would have fit that category. They were living inside of the boundaries of the Roman Empire. But I would like to try and parse this and, and define it even a little bit more carefully by saying that these words are addressed primarily to Christian individuals and families in contrast to being addressed to the church 
as the church, as the church gathered together, the organization of the church. Let me, let me just clarify what I'm saying here. To be sure, these words have application to us as a gathered church, as an organized church. We, after all, are right now in the state of Pennsylvania, in the township of Conshohocken, and in the United States of America, and we should submit to the laws of the state, honor the magistrate and the authorities that are over us. So this, without question, has application to us as a corporate body. But the primary focus here, not only of this section, but of the ones that follow this, the primary focus is on us as Christians as we're living our lives before and in a particular community, a, a particular township, a particular county or state or nation. Individually, or at least as families, you and I have a direct relationship to the state that is not mediated through the church. Okay? As, as individuals, as, as citizens of a country, you have a direct relationship to the states not mediated through the church. Now, our relationship to the state is informed by the church. It's even prescribed by the church because the church is entrusted with the word of God. And so the church as entrusted with the word of God, remember God is over all of these spheres. He's the sovereign of sovereigns over all things. The church is entrusted with the word of God. And so if you will, the church through its words, words like the words that we're reading this morning, is giving birth to this idea and the legitimacy of this idea of the state. The church is, is saying to the state, indeed, you, have, you exist within this world, and indeed, you have legitimacy in your existence in this world, and you have a purpose within this world. The state has a purpose described here in a very brief way. If you like the idea of limited government, this is your verse, um, because this is about as limited as it comes, the purpose of the state being described here as punishing those who do evil and praising those who do good. Now, that's not the only thing uh, in Scripture about the purpose of the state, but that's what Peter says here. So it's a very, very quick description of the purpose of the state that is given here. But in so doing, there's a legitimacy that's recognized. Peter recognizes the legitimacy of this sphere, this institution, this idea that is called the state. And there's also something else that is recognized here. There's the legitimacy and the responsibility of the Christian to act accordingly with regard to the authorities of the state, with regard to the structures of the state that God has established in their positions because they are appointed by God. On the front of your bulletins, I put Romans 13. Romans 13 shows this perhaps even more clearly than our passage here in 1 Peter. But here's what it says, just from the front of your bulletin. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Now, that sounds exactly like what we've just read in Peter. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. 
And so the, the legitimacy of the state is established in the legitimacy and the responsibility of the Christian to heed what the state is saying because of their appointment to that office by God. So, here's what that means. The fact that we are members of the church, that we are under the authority of the church whose king is Jesus, that our freedom has been purchased, that we are now under the law of God in a good way and in a proper way of understanding that, and the fact that we are members of a holy nation, that membership does not exempt us from our membership, our participation in a community, our membership and our participation in a state with the corresponding legitimate responsibilities that exist for people who are members of that state and who aren't members of a church as well. Now, if that all makes sense, if that's accurate, then Peter is addressing, I think, at least, at least, and, and more than this, but at least three temptations that are common to all ages of people with respect to the church. All ages of Christians have been tempted by these three things, and Peter's addressing them here. Temptation number one is the temptation to be a zealot, the temptation to be an enthusiast and to overthrow the government and to reestablish in some form or another some kind of theocratic state, some kind of state wherein God is seen as the ruler of that state. This represented a significant viewpoint in Judaism. There was the party of the Zealots. In fact, one of Jesus' disciples was called right, Simon the Zealot. He was of the party of the Zealots. Those who were looking to see, if not the complete and utter destruction of the Roman Empire, at least the rebirth of the nation-state of Israel. So this was the expectation, and it was an expectation that grew with the life of Christ. You've read the Gospels, you know that when you read the Gospels, this expectation is kind of percolating up at various points where everybody's wondering if right now Jesus is going to tell everybody, strap on your swords, let's go, let's march, let's take this thing back. They're waiting for that moment when he will establish things. The person, the author of our letter, is one who had the sword in his hand, right? And who not only had the sword in his hand, but this is Peter, who when he sees Jesus getting arrested says, okay, I don't know what time the rest of these times were, but this is the time, takes out the sword, lops off the ear of the high priest, and is ready to roll. Is ready to say, this is the time for us to take it right now, the state. We're not allowing him to be arrested. And his Lord, the King of Kings, says, put that away. Put that away. This is not the time for that. This is a different time, and he heals the ear, and he goes off to his suffering. So temptation one is to be a zealot of some sort, to seek to, to, to rebel and to establish or reestablish. Temptation number two is the opposite of that. Temptation number two is isolation, is disengagement, is spiritual retreatism. 
a view that says we shouldn't, or at least I won't soil myself with participation in the muck of this world, in the muck of the state. I don't want anything to do with that. In its extreme form, we could think of it as monasticism. Right? So this is, this is the idea of the monastic movement. We have to pull away into the desert as far away as we possibly can get and isolate ourselves so that all of that stuff that everybody else is concerned with is not our concern so we can be this spiritual people in this particular place. In milder forms, it takes place when you just disengage. When you go, you know what, life that goes on in the county, in the township, in the community... I don't care about any of that. I just care about life in the church. I just care about life with the people of God. I just care about life with my family. And you pull away and you disengage. That's a milder form of the same idea of isolationism or disengagement. The third temptation. The third temptation is the temptation to grumble. To be characterized by a hopelessness, a bitterness, an anger, and a crankiness. Now, the word of God to the zealot, the word of God through the apostle Peter says to the zealot, be subject. The word of God through the apostle Peter says to the isolationist, to the separatist, do good. The word of God says to the one who will grumble and complain about whatever government exists, honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. Those are the instructions. These are the temptations that are common to all of us. Those are the instructions that go right at those temptations and instruct us. If I haven't offended you, I'm sorry. I was trying. The main category... The overarching theme that is here in this passage is honor. It's just like the fifth commandment. The entirety of this sermon, the entirety of what Peter has to say in this passage could be preached from the fifth commandment that we read earlier from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Honor your father and your mother. And the idea of the commandment in the shorter, but especially in the larger, is that that has broad-based applications to all the spheres of life. To everywhere and every sphere in which you enter into, in which there's somebody who has authority and somebody who is to be subject to that authority. Honor your father and your mother. We are being instructed in honorable conduct, and no one should think for a moment that being honorable is easy to do in this world. Here's my assumption. My assumption is that every single one of us in this room has not only been subject to the temptations that I articulated just a moment ago, but has succumbed to those exact temptations. I mean, who here hasn't wanted to say, no, we want the kingdom of God established now. Part of you's got to want that. And part of you's got to want to overthrow evil and wickedness and say, now is the time for this to be established. Who here hasn't at times felt like, forget it, there's nothing we can do here. I've got to get away. I've got to be isolated from this. I've got to be on my own. Forget the state. I'll just be a spiritual person in this world. And it's redundant to even ask who here among us hasn't grumbled about the state and about the authorities over us. That's pastime, right? I mean, 
we do that without even thinking about what we are doing. Being honorable in this world is in no way easy, and yet that is the call. The call that we have, the primary call that exists in this text is the call to honor. I know that it is the last thing that is listed here where it's got honor everyone and honor the emperor, but remember, it's the broad category that's being addressed here. Peter's addressing us. That's, that's what uh, verse 12 says. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Boom. Here's what it looks like. Here's the honorable conduct. So uh, I, I, the, the larger catechism, turn to page 7 in your bulletin for just a moment. The larger catechism is too verbose to have read it all or to have recited it all uh, as our affirmation of faith. But I would just like to read question 127 or the answer to question one. 27 for us, because the question here is, okay, what's the honor? What is the honor that inferiors owe to superiors? Now, please understand the language here. Uh, This is not talking about personhood. It's speaking of position. So what what is the honor that those who are subjects, right? Subjects are those who are in subjection, so those things kind of go together. What is the honor that those who are subjects owe to those who are in authority? Here's the answer. The honor which inferiors owe to their superiors is all due reverence in heart, word, and behavior, prayer and thanksgiving for them, imitation of their virtues and graces, willing obedience to their lawful commands and counsels, due submission to their corrections, fidelity to defense and maintenance of their persons and authority according to their several ranks and the nature of their places, bearing with their infirmities and covering them in love, that so they may be an honor to them and to their government. It's at heart. It didn't only say that I had to act that way. It said I had to be that way in my heart. That's another one of those commandments that is good for us, but that slays us at the exact same thing. Being subject and doing good, two of the things that are commanded here, are the ways that we show honor. They are part of honorable conduct. So these things, these things are the guiding stars for us. These are the disposition that is to characterize us as believers. These are the proverbs for living long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. That's the promise that's attached to the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother that, it, that you may live long on the land which the Lord your God has given you, or if you want to read that from Ephesians, that it may go well with you. Honor your father and your mother that it may go well with you. The idea embedded here is a very beautiful and a very simple idea that God has established these structural systems that exist within the world, and insofar as you are able, and insofar as you do, honor that which God has established, order tends to flow from that. Prosperity tends to flow from that. Living long and doing well tend to flow out of that kind of honor and that kind of subjection. And so, so, so you've got it here, right? Honor everyone. Honor everyone. In particular, honor those who have authority over you. Honor the emperor. How do you honor? How should you honor a person? Well, you should be subject. Be subject to those who are in authority. 
and you should do good. You should do good within the sphere that we're talking about right here. This is the civic sphere. This is the sphere of the state. Why should you do it? Because, as this text says, this is the will of God. This is the will of God. This is not the preacher. Well, it it is the preacher insofar as I'm speaking on God's behalf right now. But this is what the word of God says. This is the command of your king. Your king says, honor that king. Be subject to that king. He's there because I ultimately have appointed him to be in that position. This is the will of God. It's good to do this. It's glorifying to God to do this. It's good for you to do this. It will yield a long life for you. And, and, let's not forget, the purpose in particular for which Peter is saying these things, others need to see it. You'll silence the ignorant, the foolish. They will see it, and they will see the gospel being lived out before them. And hopefully give you an opportunity to explain that to them as well. This is the will of God. Honor. Be subject. Do good. Parentheses. A brief parenthetical break at this point. Here's what I want to call this break. We'll call this the but what about break. But what about? Because I know that in this congregation right now, everybody is sitting here going, but what about? And fill in whatever the about is that you've got that you're thinking about uh, right now. Listen, the Bible doesn't pretend that this is always going to be clear, that it's always going to be easy. And let's say this straight off. Of course there are exceptions. Of course there are exceptions to this. There will be, undoubtedly, unlawful commands that come from those who are in authority. Our responsibility is to obey their lawful commands. Our responsibility is not to obey their unlawful commands. Okay? That's, that's clear, right? Sometimes doing this, sometimes obeying God instead of man. That's what Peter says in, in Acts. You know, we have to obey God. We, not, we, don't, we don't obey man. We have to obey God. Sometimes that's gonna lend, we're going to end up in the fiery furnace as a result of that. There are exceptions, granted. There will also be situations that are murky, that are unclear, that we're trying to feel our way through and trying to apply principles in and trying to go, okay, have I crossed a line here? Are we crossing a line? Where is this going to be? So there's murky situations. Likewise, there's going to be wicked leaders and wicked regimes that exist in the world. And there's going to be all sorts of things that you'd have to figure out if we lived in one of those. And whatever you may think of American politics, we don't know the half of living inside of a wicked, oppressive regime that some people live in. And so, granted, those difficulties exist, and they require a lot of prayer and a lot of working out of what does this mean? How do I obey this particular command? But as I said last week, make no mistakes, Peter was under no illusions that the Roman Empire was somehow good and just and right and loved Christians all the time. That, his, his assumption is exactly the opposite of that. His assumption is the wickedness of the empires, is the persecution that is increasing amongst the church. It's not contrary to it, or it's not assuming the best here. It's assuming the worst. But let's say something else as well. So those are the kind of negative exceptions. We're still inside of the the but what about parentheses. Here's another side of it that's a positive side. Sometimes some of us are going to have opportunities to actually be the ones who are in authority inside of that sphere. 
And it's perfectly legitimate for us, for you as a Christian, to hold office, to hold public office, or to hold township office, or to serve on a council, or to serve on a PTA, or to serve, take your way, work your way on up from there. That's a very legitimate thing for a Christian to do. And when you find yourself then in a position of leadership within one of these spheres, you ought to act well in that position. Likewise, in our society in particular, in our culture in particular, we have the opportunity to give input to the formation and the reformation of the norms of that sphere. We have the opportunity to engage with that sphere. And that's good. So you don't have to sit back and, and just agree with everything and not say anything at all, especially in our culture, where the expectation for the system, in fact, demands participation on the part of those who are the governed. So we'll recognize and appreciate that all of those things are there. These exist. Some of them are problems. Some of them are opportunities. But they are not the norm. They aren't the norm. Peter doesn't address them at all. Peter didn't take a parenthetical break to say, but what about? He just went on. He just said it. And he set forth the idea of these norms. And the norm is honor, subjection, and doing good, and parentheses, and but what about parentheses right now. And Peter gives us a helpful picture then of what this looks like. He says, what you are acting like in this world are free servants, free slaves. That's, that's the disposition you hold as you live your life inside of this sphere of the state. You are a free slave. Now, that sounds very odd, right? It sounds like two opposite things that exist. But biblically, they go really well together. I'm thankful for one of the writers that pointed out this rather simple thing to me as I was reading it and thinking about it this week. You think of the words of the Lord through Moses to Pharaoh, what did he say? Let my people go that they may serve me. Set my people free that they may serve. This idea of bringing together freedom and service, let me, let me read verse 16 for us. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Okay, so this idea that Peter's got here, it, this is no novel idea. This is from the very beginning. <laughs> from the, as soon as the sovereign of sovereigns creates the world and says to the creation that he's made, rule over it. Rule over it. Subdue it. See, this, the sovereign of sovereign recognizes all of this right away. You're my servants. I've set you free. Now rule over the creation that I've given you. And that is in front of you. Now, the ultimate freedom that Peter has in mind here is not being a free Roman citizen. Uh, he's going to address slaves in the very next section here, and he doesn't say to the slaves, get your freedom. Now, Paul says, if it's possible and you can get your freedom, that's a fine thing to do. But that's not what Peter says in our section. The freedom that he has in mind is the freedom that we have in Christ from the bondage that we had to Satan, to sin, and to death. The bondage that we had to ourselves and to our selfishness. Those things had locked us into a life of slavery and a life of futility from which we have been ransomed. We've been redeemed from that life 
We've been freed from that life by what? By the precious blood of Christ. Let me just read it again for us. It's from chapter 1, verse 18. He's just picking up a theme he had earlier. He says, uh, in verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. You've been ransomed. A price was paid for you to set you free in this world. Now you are free to serve God. To serve God even if you're a slave. Even if you're a slave, you've been set free to be able to serve God by honoring, being subject, and doing good. We're free to love. Even when the love and the service will yield our suffering or at least some kind of loss to our persons. Jonathan Edwards, it's good to hear this from another generation's perspective. Jonathan Edwards, writing in the first half of the 18th century, writes this. A Christian spirit is contrary to a selfish spirit, as it, that is the Christian spirit, disposes persons to be public-spirited. The Christian spirit disposes persons to be public-spirited. He continues. A man of a right spirit is not a narrow, private spirit, but he is greatly concerned for the good of the public community to which he belongs, and particularly the town where he dwells. Jonathan Edwards is not writing in an age like we live in right now, where there are transformationalists who would say that the purpose of the church is the transformation of society. It is not. That is not the sphere of the church. That is not the purpose that belongs to us. Jonathan Edwards isn't speaking in that realm, but he's still able to say that, listen, if you've got the Christian spirit within you, that disposes you to seek the public good, to seek the public welfare, especially of the town where you live, or the state where you live, or the nation where you live. Peter wants us to be servants of our fellow image bearers. And that's the idea here. Honor everyone. Honor everyone. There's a sense to which all of these people around us, as wicked as they might be, are still image bearers. And so to some extent, Peter says, honor everyone. In particular, honor those who are in positions of authority. Honor those who hold these positions that have, to which they have been appointed by God. We are free servants for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I need to say one phrase that you're just going to have to think about it because I don't have time to explain it all right now. We are servants. We are not servile. We are servants, not servile. We are free servants in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ becoming our spine, becoming our backbone, becoming our example the one by which we can, the one by whom we can submit ourselves in these various difficult situations. All right, let me give you a couple of concrete things you can do to follow up on this sermon. First of all, I included some of the larger catechism, as I said, on page 7 uh, and the following page in your bulletin. But I would encourage you, whether as an individual, a family, or especially for you small groups who are reflecting on these things, 
to open up the larger catechism and work your way through that section on the fifth commandment and consider that in light of the things that have been said here. It would also be good to look at chapter 23 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is of the civil magistrate. And you'll see the same ideas that are here in 1 Peter, there in that chapter uh, as well, as that chapter was adjusted when it was received by the uh, American Presbyterian Church in the 1700s. But let me be even more concrete for you as we bring this to a close. Here's what I want you to ask yourself this week. And I'm saying here's what I'd like you to ask yourself. I think this is what the Word of God would have you to ask yourself. To whom should you be in subjection in an appropriate way? Are there people? Are there offices? To whom, to which you should be in subjection where you're not? Maybe you need some repentance in that area. Here's a second question. What good can you do in your community as a service to that community? What civic good can you do within your community that will be witnessed by other people? Now, don't do it for that sake. We're not men-pleasers in that sake. We're doing it to do a public good that can be seen and can be part of the gospel. You have anything? I've already got one. Yesterday, obviously, the sermon was prepared by this point. I got an email from one of our members, one of the doctor members of our congregation, who said, Eric, there's a critical shortage of blood right now. Here's something you can do. You want to do a public good this week? Go give a pint of blood. I'm signed up on Thursday. Of all the family, somehow I got signed up to go uh, this Thursday to give blood. It's just an example. That's all it is. An example of what you can do to be part of the community and to do something good within the community. And one last one. To whom can you show honor? And how will you do it? Especially in the civic sphere. Especially in the civil sphere. How can you honor someone in that sphere? I got mine. I need to write a little note to Yaniv Aronson. Yaniv Aronson is the mayor of Conshohocken. I just need to write a note to Yaniv. Say, I'm praying for you. I, I've met him a couple of times. Praying for you. Glad for your enthusiasm for the community. God bless. That's going to be mine. What can you do? These things are part of the mission that God has given to us. And in doing it, we show ourselves to be loyal subjects. Loyal subjects, not only of this particular state or government or township, loyal subjects of our King Jesus Christ, who has said, be subject, honor, do good in this sphere. Lord, we pray that you would help us. Uh, we all recognize complicated situations. Help us not to be uh, stuck on the complicated parts of this. Help us to see clearly the clear parts of this, the easy parts of this, or not easy parts, but at least the ones that are clear, and help us then to walk in these things in a way that would be pleasing to you, in a way that would be honoring to your name in the midst of this world in which we find ourselves. We confess that it's not easy. We confess that our thoughts and our hearts are going to betray us in this process, and pray that you would help us. Jesus, imprint yourself more and more upon our lives. And we pray in your name. Amen.